The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. I think the reason that Chinese influence is seen as something negative is because China has not been entirely transparent about how they deal with each country, about the kind of influence they extend to other countries. Ultimately, only the Chinese people can change China. But in the meantime, while China is what China is, the rest of the world has to learn to deal with it. In this episode, who's afraid of China and why? Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. On any given day, China is making headlines in Western media. It could be the trade war with the US or China's Belt and Road investments, its latest moves in the South China Sea or its increasing intolerance of dissent. But the critical focus is not new. The United States' first national defence strategy in a decade released in 2018 boldly labels China as a, quote, revisionist power seeking to shape a world consistent with its authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic and security decisions. Also last year, Australian academic Professor Clive Hamilton made his own headlines with his book Silent Invasion which portrays China as a nation on an unrelenting quest for world domination and therefore a security threat to Australia. There's no question China's economic and military resurgence worries many, especially in the US, Canada, Australia and some countries in Europe. But do China's ambitions to regain its world power status really constitute a threat to the West? What exactly do countries fear from China's rise? And how will the West come to terms with the prospect of a globally dominant China? Joining me in the studio to examine the challenges posed by a resurgent Middle Kingdom are two long-time China watchers based at the University of Melbourne, Dr Sauki Tok from Asia Institute and Dr Pradeep Tunisia from the School of Social and Political Sciences. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Pradeep and Sauki. Hi, Ali. Thank you, Ali. Well, before we look at what is behind the West's attitudes towards China, I just wanted to explore a little whether fear is the right way to characterise how many view China. The question we're posing is who's afraid of China? Sarkit, if I can start with you, is fear the right way to put this or is it more about apprehension and uncertainty? I think you're probably right in saying that there is a little bit of apprehension and uncertainty over there. When most countries look at China, I think you're looking at a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum is fear. On the other one is really some countries that were pretty comfortable with what China is doing. However, most of the others really sit in between where there is a lot of uncertainty. They are not entirely sure where China is going to be and how China will be. And at that kind of apprehension that they'll be treading very carefully when they're dealing with China. Pradeep, would you say fear is an appropriate word? There is certainly an element of fear, I think. And that fear arises from rapid sort of growth of China's not just economic power, but China's military power. I mean, remember China 30 years ago, basically nobody would compare China with the United States in terms of military power. But China's own indigenous sort of development of military hardware 
and military capabilities has meant that there is now a wide gap between China and the rest of the world except the United States. China has become the second biggest military power in terms of defense budget, in terms of its capabilities. The question now is of intentions, really. I mean, China has developed tremendous military power. The question is what China's intentions are. So there is no doubt an element of fear in that. And we'll look at the military angle more specifically in a minute. But is it also because China is run by the Communist Party? It's a party with a very different and more opaque system than many in the West. Is that also key to how many in the West view the country? I think it is. I mean, China's political system clearly is a factor in this China has an authoritarian political system. There is very little transparency in terms of what China's intentions are. Most of the debates in China at the policy level are conducted internally within the party or party's own intellectual circles, and therefore very little of that debate comes out. In fact, until a few years ago, we actually knew more about what the Chinese scholars and Chinese officials were discussing. But over the last four or five years, that space has shrunk. Now we don't hear as much about China's policy options and policy debates. So there is a genuine concern because we don't know what China's intentions are. China's language is always very general, very general win-win cooperation, you know, community of shared destiny. These are kind of slogans which may appeal to some people, but hardcore international relations, strategic affairs analysts don't see much transparency in those statements. Saki, a perfect example of that sort of language is the Belt and Road Initiative, isn't it? Which is very much portrayed as a win-win. That takes us to China on the economic stage. How do you think Belt and Road plays into how the West views China? I think Belt and Road is a very, very ambitious program that Xi Jinping decided to take on. And the sheer mass of that project is not just wow observers worldwide, but the big question is, will they be able to pull it off? And why did they do it in the first place? And so far, Belt and Road, as we have discussed elsewhere, is that China has not been truly transparent about what their intentions really are, except for the idea about helping the developing world in their infrastructure development. Well, it's building economic cooperation yeah, and, and trade corridors, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. In absolutely. theory. Yeah, in theory. But it's, it's almost like, you know, the way that the language that has been used is almost like we are doing it for the bigger good and we are providing a kind of a common good for the region. It would definitely be a lot better if China has been more transparent in what they have got to gain out from it and be forthfront about what they think about it. Going back to a little bit about what Pradeep has said earlier on is that I beg to differ slightly on the point about Communist Party. I think China being a communist state is just one of the reasons why the West is not comfortable with China. But on top of that, I think other countries like Vietnam and Cuba are not really real threats to the world, whereas North Korea is. So it's more like the perception of what is going on inside the country and what are the uncertainty over the intentions that really cause that fear, not because of that communist regime itself. And we have to take into account that China has become one of the largest economies in the world, in fact, the second largest economy in the world. And the readiness for China to convert that economic power to other forms of power like military power 
and political influence are making people uncertain of what they're going to get out from China. Pradeep, do you agree with that? Because on the face of it, you can look at the massive investment. For example, let's take the China-Pakistan economic corridor. That seems fairly clear that that is about providing China access to ports. And it's also about providing Pakistan with much needed infrastructure. Do we go further than that? I think it is more than that. Clearly, Pakistan is a country which has been struggling financially. Pakistani economy is in deep trouble, even now, despite all the assistance that Pakistan has sought from the IMF and Saudi Arabia and China. Pakistan is not a country which attracts a lot of foreign direct investment. The fact that the Chinese government was willing to invest through loans and investments by Chinese state-owned companies in excess of 60 billion U.S. dollars tells you that it's not about economic rationale. One of the strategic purposes, of course, is there is a feeling in China among official circles that if you help develop Pakistan's economy, then it will create jobs and therefore those Pakistani youth who become involved in terrorism and such activities, they would be weaned off this because they'll be able to find jobs. And this would have a bearing on China's own Xinjiang province because many of the Uyghurs you know, do go to Pakistan and there is a support system in Pakistan for them. So there is a feeling that if we help Pakistan to develop its economy by developing its infrastructure, this will you know, improve the situation. But I think that's a minor point. I think the main important point is China has, since the early 1960s, used Pakistan as a way to keep India hobbled. And that's been part of China's strategic objective. Earlier, China used to give Pakistan economic and military aid, which was sort of modest. Now that China is world's second largest economy, China has got huge reserves, huge capacity to give foreign aid and loans. Now China is helping Pakistan through methods which are clearly clearly strategic in nature. And if we look at this in the context of China as an economic threat, I mean, it's not just Pakistan. It's been very clear we've seen the implications of Chinese investment in Sri Lanka. We've got Chinese very heavily invested in Myanmar. Uh, Chinese virtually dominate Laos, for example, heavy investment in Cambodia. Uh, Do you see that more as a win-win or do you see that more as China using its money for a greater geopolitical ambition? Technically speaking, there's nothing wrong with China using its financial muscle to seek you know, geopolitical Absolutely. sort of objectives. The problem is how China goes about it. China projects it as something which is benign. It is only there to help people. China has no strategic objectives in it. And, and the same applies to the Belt and Road Initiative. That Belt and Road Initiative is about building a community of shared interests. There are no strategic. In fact, if you mention this to officials in China, they immediately react to it and say, no, 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 but who told you that this is strategic? This is not about strategic objectives. A degree of honesty would help. Like, for example, when Australian politicians talk about foreign aid, why Australia gives foreign aid, they are often quite open about saying that, well, it is good for us. There are economic incentives. There are economic benefits. I remember during the previous Hawke-Keating government, there was a minister who was in charge of Australian foreign aid called Gordon Billney. And Gordon Billney, if I remember correctly, he said, every dollar that we spend on foreign aid, we get $3 in return. And that kind of honesty you don't see in China's foreign aid mm. program or in China's... Back and Australia talks about soft power diplomacy quite a lot and you know middle power diplomacy. It's quite open about why it's doing what it's doing. Absolutely. I think that is the thing when 
when I said that China has not been upfront about their intentions. And if it is really building political links with the third world, they might as well just say it out and say, this is what we want to do. We want to break out from the encirclement and we just want to prove that we are good neighbours with regional countries. And when they put up a veil and try to hide behind and say, we are all doing it for goodwill and for altruistic reasons, I think very few observers are going to buy into those kind of arguments. At the same time, if we look at how China has worked with the global multilateral institutions that were set up after World War II, if we look at the World Bank, the IMF, the UN, the WTO, China certainly, with many others, has been agitating for change to recognise the rebalancing of global economies. But it has been working within those systems. It's not advocating for them to be dumped. It's advocating for them to be reformed. So when we talk about China playing by rules or not playing by rules, are they not trying to work within the established system? I think, Ali, you make a very good point. So far, what China did, really, with World Bank, IMF, and even the setting of AIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, they have been playing by the rules rather than reshaping whatever existing system that was set up after World War II. I mean, China is a big country. He has big economic power. He has a huge stake in whatever that is, you know, international environment, whether it's conducive for its own diplomacy and its own activities. Naturally, it will want to make sure that it crafts a system or an environment that's conducive for itself. But the good thing that China did is that it has so far refrained from overturning whatever regulations or systems that he has benefited for the past 40 years and really try to work within the system, trying to reform the system. I think some of the accusation or criticisms towards China that they have been trying to overturn the current system is a little too far, in my opinion. I would disagree with that. I think China doesn't have to go and sabotage the existing system or withdraw from the institutions that China has joined since the open-door policy started in the late 1970s. China is creating alternatives. So Belt and Road so can do both. Exactly. You can stay a member of the existing institutions and be a part of those while at the same time creating alternatives, working with other illiberal systems like Russia, for example, to try and create you know, alternative institutions. And Belt and Road has to be seen with within that context. Belt and Road Initiative is not about foreign aid. It is not even about building infrastructure. It's about creating a new strategic global system. Indeed, Pradeep, you've just spent a significant amount of time in Germany. And I just wanted to bring up a quote from Germany's former foreign minister, who in his last speech before he left the role, he said, where the architecture of the liberal order begins to crumble, others will start to erect their pillars in the building. The entire construction will change in the long term. So in some ways, is that expressing a concern in the West that even if China does work within the current framework of multilateral institutions, what will those institutions look like when China's finished with them? Indeed, indeed. And what about the alternative sort of institutions that China may seek to develop in the future? And there is a great deal of concern in Europe, not only Germany, but even France and a number of other countries, Poland, for example. There is a concern about the alternative institutions, alternative infrastructure that China is building. Remember that much of the port infrastructure that China is developing as part of the Belt and Road, all the way from Asia and Africa to Europe, can be dual use. 
it can be used for civilian or you know mercantile purposes, but it can also be used for defense purposes, depending on the attitude of the host country. And therefore, those countries which have been willing to host this infrastructure may in fact be persuaded, as China's economic and military power continues to rise, may be persuaded to allow military usage of those facilities. Before we get to military, Sakit, I want to ask, do you accept that point that you can play in the current infrastructure, but you can also be building your alternative? I agree with the point, but I don't see a problem with that, especially when, if like what the former German foreign minister said, if the pillars were crumbling, then there is no reason why someone cannot come in and erect something that is different. I see the order as an evolving process rather than a stagnated system. You know, even when we talk about the post-World War II system, it's undergone multiple changes since 1945. We see the decolonization process. We saw the onwards of uh, the post-Cold War order. And order is always evolving. And I like to see that with emerging new powers such as China, there will be new form of network of relationship, a way of working that benefits everyone. I'll just give you an example. More recently, the South Pacific Forum, the South Pacific nations were just very forefront about it, said if Australia is not going to help, we're going to go for China. It's a good option for them. Use them as a bargaining chip and leverage. You know, it allows developing states and those that are in need of investments and economic help to choose rather than just sticking on to one single system where they only can approach Australia or, or some other Western liberal economies for help in this case. I think that's a different issue because what Sakit is saying here is the behavior of small states. Small states always behave in this manner. They always try to hedge. Get they the always best deal. try to get the best deal. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter whether it's China or Russia or any other country, they would be willing to gain whatever benefit they can get by playing one against the other. That's been the common pattern we've seen for a long time. So there's nothing surprising about South Pacific states or, in fact, across the Himalayas, the South Asian states doing that between China and India on mm. a smaller scale. Yep. So, so this kind of behavior is nothing new. But the argument that it doesn't matter just because China is you know, the new power and therefore there's nothing wrong with China trying to create an alternative sort of global system, I think that's a very amoral argument. It doesn't take into account the fact that the liberal order was based on certain values. Those values may have been Western values, but many of the states in the world, smaller states in Asia and Africa and in Latin America, in fact, accepted those values. Many of the states democratized. Many of the states built democratic liberal institutions, which were based on essentially Western institutions. So the issue from your point of view is not that they're building an alternative order. It's the values that underpin the order which they are building. And the values that underpin China's political system. Salki, you're I, nodding. I actually agree with Pradeep, yes. But what is the problem with changing the values of the system. We have been accepting the Western system for, for decades, you know, and um, maybe it's time for a change. I'm putting my foot forward here. I mean, Which the, values would you like to bring in? I was going to say, is there not issue, an issue here of transparency? Because while China does have very specific values that underpin the Communist Party, they're not necessarily represented in the way the society is run. I don't see it as the building of a new value system as something that is amoral. I think there is a new moral standards that China is trying to promote here. Now, without buying into the whole China being good kind of argument, I do agree that China has not been entirely transparent in the way that they do. 
that is an understatement, really. They have not been transparent at all, which is creating that fear in the very first place. Rather, I'm trying to say that when China is trying to promote a value change in the system, they should be forthcoming and say that these are the type of things that we are trying to promote. But they have not been doing that. I was going to say, Pradeep, from the West point of view, I mean, the beginning of that quote from the German foreign minister, where the architecture of the liberal order begins to crumble. I mean, isn't this the problem that China is simply doing what it can do because the architecture of the liberal order right now is not strong? Remember, the liberal order doesn't just exist in isolation at the international level. Liberal order is also reflected at the domestic level. What's happening in Hong Kong, for example, is clearly an extension of that liberal order. So the Chinese state is worried not just about the liberal order internationally, but what it might mean in China. And the preservation of the monopoly of political power of the Chinese Communist Party is the primary goal. So for the CCP, that is the foremost goal, that the preservation of the monopoly on political power of the Chinese Communist Party cannot be challenged. And anything that challenges that or comes into conflict with that objective is not acceptable. When we talk about values, what values China brings to the international system, we need to consider China's bottom line. The bottom line is an authoritarian system ruled by one party is not to be compromised. But that bottom line, though, does depend on a level of economic development and a level of well-being of the population that gives the party legitimacy. So again, in terms of being an economic threat, let me ask you, I mean, China needs markets. They have to sell their stuff to someone. So does that help ameliorate China as an economic threat? When China began to open up its economy in the late 70s, China changed laws. China brought new laws to attract foreign investment, foreign companies, initially starting from Hong Kong and other Asian countries, but then increasingly Japan and the United States and European Union all began to invest in China. And there was a perception that if China continues to evolve down the market path, if Chinese economy continues to evolve down this path, China has a liberal economy, and liberal economy would lead to rising living standards, emergence of a new middle class in China, and that new middle class will eventually demand political change, and China will become like us. Over the last five years, particularly since President Xi Jinping came to power, there has been a new perception that that hypothesis hasn't worked. It's not going to work. And therefore, concerns about China's rise, concerns about China's growing power have become more serious because now there is a perception that we were wrong. We assumed that China was going to change. China was going to become like us, like what happened in many other Asian countries, South Korea, Taiwan went through the same process, that China might go through the same process. But now we know that China is not going through that process. China, in fact, is going backwards in some ways. So there is a fear that if China continues to grow its influence, then we are in trouble. In other words, then you know, China would become a threat to the liberal order. And you know, people are already talking about this illiberal order regardless of its need for continued economic growth. Well, this but is that will decision, become secondary. This is a decision that China has to make. But if the Chinese Communist Party were to come to the conclusion that continuing engagement with the international market on increasingly different conditions threatens the monopoly on political power of the CCP, they would rather preserve their monopoly on political power than continue to change. Now, Pradeep, your argument there is based on the premise that liberal order is good for everyone. I'm not going to dispute that, but you know, if we were to raise the discussion to another level where we have to really question what that liberal order has brought us, 
since the end of the Cold War. You know, the Asian financial crisis, the global financial crisis. And if you talk about morality, you know, the global financial crisis was one of those situations where the liberal order failed to live up to those moral values that they preach. But when the liberal order fails to deliver, you try and find remedies to the liberal order. You don't seek to overthrow it lock, stock and barrel. And also when you talk about values, my question is, what alternative values would you like to introduce? Can, can I so, draw? I'm going to draw you back here because I think we will do a whole other Ear to Asia episode on arguing about whose values are the right values. But can I just, Salkeet, ask you to respond to Pradeep's point that if China gets to a point where it finds that engagement with the international economic community on terms that increasingly threaten its supremacy, it will simply withdraw. Would you agree with that? No, I don't agree with that. At this point of time, I don't see how China will want to withdraw from this because by withdrawing, they are reducing its stake in that system. So China could accelerate the process of trying to build more alternative arrangements. But to withdraw from the existing system will be a very, very bad decision, I think. I didn't say that China will withdraw because given the nature of the Chinese economy, withdrawing completely is not an option. But I said they will prioritise the preservation of the monopoly on political power. It'll be different levels. There would be increased resistance, for example, to the system being maintained or system being altered, new conditions being imposed, for example, if the international community decides that you know we need to change this order. For example, what President Trump is trying to do with China and on a bilateral level, if that is reflected at their global level, then certainly there would be much more increased resistance from China. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Dr. Pradeep Tunisia and Dr. Salki Tok. We're talking about fears of a rising China. We're very much focused on, I suppose, the the question of values and the the issue of China as an economic threat. What about China as a military threat, which Pradeep, you touched on earlier? If you look at past history, China has not proven aggressive militarily. In fact, if you put them up against the number of attempted regime changes, successful or otherwise, by the Americans, then you know China rates very well. Are they a threat militarily? China is not a threat as such. You know, if you look at China's current disputes, China has a number of disputes. And for those countries that China has disputes with, certainly there is an element of threat because China is an irredentist state. China seeks to claim territory which it perceives to be China's territory, whether it's border dispute with India or in the South China Sea territorial disputes with other Southeast Asian countries. But, but it's not fired a shot across its border, as I understand it, since 1988 and the skirmish between China and Vietnam. True. You know, I mentioned the China-India border dispute. China-India border dispute, despite the differences on the border, both sides have agreed to maintain peace on the border. And neither side has fired a bullet for more more than 30 years, you know, across that border. But that doesn't mean that China will remain or refrain from using force to pursue its objectives forever. So China's ambitions are growing. China's objectives are growing. And therefore, China will continue to push the envelope when it comes to its territorial ambitions. 
I'll be more concerned if China went beyond South China Sea to claim other parts of Southeast Asia, for example. I think in that case, I am slightly more optimistic than Pradeep. China is not an irredentist state in that way because all the borders that it tries to govern has been part that it has claimed in history. By history, it means that when the Republic of China was formed in 1912. Now, South China Sea is a very interesting case. We can have a whole new podcast about it. But to put things in a simple way, the South China Sea issue is a post-colonial issue. When all these states around South China Sea, they became modern sovereign nation states, they drew borders around the area that nobody seems to care until the 1970s. So it was then they realized that, oh, China has drawn that 11-13 lines. Which is rather ambiguous. Yes. yes, which is rather ambiguous, I have to admit. But at the end of it, we have to realize that it was because those areas were not the focus of all these modern nation states in the neighborhood until very recently that everyone started to claim that 200 nautical miles exclusive economic zones. So China, since the early 1910s, have already claimed South China Sea. So that was not disputed really until about 1970s. Again, I am not going to say who is right and who is wrong, but that overlapping claim is something that is, as far as China is concerned, they're looking at it as that is part of their territory. But, but what that's, about- that's what being irredentist means. That you say you have historical claims, which are not verified, which are not acceptable under international law, but you keep insisting that these are your claims. So, I mean, how is it possible, for example, that in the South China Sea, all those little reefs and rocks and islands don't belong to any other country, even if it is really the closest to those rocks, they belong to China? I mean, this is an irredentist claim. I actually disagree with that. I think what Philippines is doing or what Vietnam is doing are irredentist as well. And all states will be irredentist in that sense. So I hope you agree with me that the South China Sea itself was really unclaimed for a long time and that the issue didn't really come into play until the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. Pradeep says just because they've not fired a shot doesn't mean that they won't in the future. What are their future ambitions? I think China is a threat by sheer presence. It doesn't need to have military power. China was a threat in the 1960s when all the social engineering programs are going on in China in the 1970s during the Cultural Revolution. And it is a threat whether or not it has that power. And military-wise, China has modernized. But to balance it all, it's still far away from the capabilities of United States. And in the region, it's far from the capability of Japan as yet. I was going to say, interestingly, the, the whole idea of China as a military threat ties quite nicely to the issue which is of great concern in Australia at the moment of foreign influence. Because if you look at recent comments by Australia's outgoing spy chief, he says that foreign interference is now a greater threat than terrorism. So if you think of you know state-sponsored military violence as terrorism, then we're actually talking about something that is far more dangerous and significant than that. He did not mention China by name, but that, of course, is where all the debate is centred in Australia. Salkeet, is Australia right to be worried about foreign influence? I think Australia is probably right to be worried about influence from China, much as they should be concerned about influence from United States and from other parts of Europe. I think the reason that Chinese influence is seen as something that is negative is because China has not been entirely transparent about it. And I would go back to the whole idea about transparency. China has not been transparent about their intentions. Now, we have members of federal government, you know, visiting Washington all the time, you know, 
sponsored by the United States without any issues. But when we have visits to China sponsored by China, it seems like it's going to be Chinese influence. Now, China needs to be clear about what exactly they were doing and not doing things under the table kind of way, which is just causing that fear and creating that aura that you're trying to do something that is not accepted by others and you're doing it because you're just trying to extend your influence. Every country is constantly trying to influence other countries. That is part of diplomacy in the very first place. But I think China needs to come to terms that in order for it to be accepted as a member of the international community, they have to be transparent about how they deal with each country, about the kind of influence they extend to other countries, especially sensitive countries such as Australia, which is very concerned about preserving its own Western heritage. I think there is a difference between the way China exerts its influence and exercises its influence in other parts of the world, particularly in liberal democracies, than how the United States or Australia or Great Britain do. Systems are very different. I keep coming back to the Chinese system. Chinese political system is essentially an illiberal system. It's not a very open system. And therefore, there are things that China is able to do in terms of exercising its influence in liberal democracies that we cannot do in China. So, for example, Chinese ambassadors all over the world write opinion pieces in Western newspapers, mass circulation newspapers, propounding essentially the propaganda of the Chinese government. Their foreign policy views, the articles may in fact be written in the foreign ministry in Beijing and they are then published in But you get the nature. American ambassador in Australia with an opinion piece well, we can every do now that and in again. The New York in the Times too. Yes. Well, we can so this is the thing. There is no reciprocity there. So it is impossible for Australian government, Australian ambassadors, to articulate views and have them published in mass circulation newspapers in China. In the People's Daily. Particularly, particularly when those views may be contradictory to the views of the Chinese government. Newspaper proprietors, private newspaper proprietors in countries like Australia or in the United States, they worry about advertising because Chinese government, Chinese ambassadors have the capability to influence the advertising decisions of Chinese companies operating in those countries. So if you have a perceived threat that if you do not carry an editorial, an opinion piece from a Chinese ambassador or any other Chinese official, and then you might stop getting advertising revenue from Chinese companies, that would be a threat for a commercial publication, which is not the case in China, because newspapers are part of the propaganda system. Do you think, Pradeep, that we are selective in how we worry about foreign influence? Salkeet said we should be worried about foreign influence, but just as much as we're worried about it from other countries. Do you think that we worry about America but we do worry about China. And is that unreasonable? Or if you go back to your earlier vigorous debate about values, that would in many ways, I suppose, explain why we approach these countries differently. I think it's a question of what those opinions and influences represent. So, for example, Australia is actually a treaty ally of the United States. So if an American ambassador or an American official wants to come and give a lecture in Australian universities, it doesn't raise hackles. It doesn't you know, raise any concerns because ultimately Australia and the United States are allies. China and Australia are not military allies. And therefore, there would be concerns if there were views being articulated openly in a classroom discussion or in a seminar in an Australian university about China's strategic ambitions. I mean, if those were academic views, I don't think there's any problem. But if a Chinese government official, Chinese ambassador wants to come and give a talk on China's foreign policy, it would be scrutinized. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I personally have no problem with the Chinese ambassador to Australia coming to give a 
seminar about Chinese foreign policy in an Australian university. I would, in fact, welcome that, particularly if the ambassador is open to questions. Saukit, we've spent a lot of time talking about the issues behind the way Western liberal democracies view China. What about the rest of the world? You started this conversation by talking about the two ends of the spectrum and one end was countries comfortable with China. But particularly in the region, is there concern about China? Do they share some of the concerns that Australia, Canada, America and parts of Europe have? I think it depends on which political persuasion those countries are in. There are some like Singapore, they are quite concerned about China's rise and not just economically but militarily as well. But there are others, for example, in Central Asia who are pretty enthusiastic about China's willingness to invest in Central Asia and bringing a new alternative to the region. You know, all the while they have been ignored, they are the backwaters. At least when I was in contact with some of those academics and business people in coming from those regions, they seem quite receptive to China's newfound confidence and investments into those regions. So I go back to my point. It depends on how much you benefit from it and the kind of political persuasion you're from and how you perceive China as a rising power. And maybe how close China is to you, literally, physically. absolutely. How close China is to you does matter a lot because the physical distance does give the kind of fear towards China. Pradeep, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have a contiguous sort of boundary with China, if you share a land border or a sea border with China, then certainly you would be much more cautious in how you respond to Chinese decisions, whether they're strategic decisions or economic decisions. But I come back to the point about the reason why China is feared, and not just by Western liberal democracies, but also a number of other states in the region, is because what the Chinese system represents. Remember that even countries like Cambodia have elections of some kind. But the nature of the Chinese political system will continue to be a source of concern. China's political system is a very opaque political system. It is a one-party system. And as China's power continues to grow, I think those concerns about China's power will continue to rise. So this brings me to my last question to both of you, which quite possibly could kick off an entire new podcast. (laughs) But how do countries like Australia come to terms with this fear? Because China clearly is not going to change. Pradeep, if you're right, then you've explained the imperatives very clearly. So how do we ameliorate that fear? Because particularly, for example, foreign influence, be very careful what you wish for, because the very freedoms we hold very close to our hearts are those that could be at risk if we try to shut certain countries down. So how do we come to terms and ameliorate this fear? There is a limit to what other countries like Australia can do to ameliorate that fear. China can do a lot more too, to be more acceptable as a global rising power. So it's not only the behavior and conduct of countries like Australia, but it is also what China would do in the future. But as far as Australia is concerned, I think as a liberal democracy for Australia, we have to consider what Australian values are. And politicians often talk about these values. These get bandied around by politicians. But sometimes we're not consistent when it comes to the implementation of those values, practicing those values. So we have to demonstrate with our behavior, that these are our values and we are very consistent. We don't compromise on those values. Now, we know that most states fail to do that. America, for example, has been a great champion of democracy, but then America has also supported you know, dictatorships and authoritarian regimes and even 
contributed to bringing down democratically elected government. And that is the inconsistency that generates cynicism. So what countries like Australia need to do is to be consistent with the values that you claim to uphold when it comes to implementing those values, practicing those values, be sincere about those values. First of all, I think the whole big idea about Australian values is a big question. Is there such thing as an Australian value or what? But beyond that, I take up from where Pradeep have left off in terms of what China should do. I think China, again, I repeat my point, China should balance up the idea that, you know, on the one hand, they must acknowledge that they are causing lots of concerns in countries that doesn't share the same kind of values or the same kind of political system as them. On the other hand, they have to think if constantly shying away from being more transparent in the way that they approach in, in the but in their Saki, that's the nature of the political system that you cannot tr- expect greater transparency within that system well i think you can try you cannot expect everyone to be transparent all throughout. Even when we talk about transparency in America, there's a certain limits to the transparency. But what really I'm trying to say is if China can try to shake off that kind of general statements that you were saying earlier on, you know, being contentless kind of statements, you try to forward something that is more acceptable. No, to no the I'm not other. trying to change China. Ultimately, only the Chinese people can change China. But in the meantime, while China is what China is, the rest of the world has to learn to deal with it. And that's the hard lesson that so many are struggling with, just, you know, writing the rule book for that lesson. Thank you so much to both of you for talking to Ear to Asia. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Ellie. Our guests have been Dr. Sauki Tok from Asia Institute and Dr. Pradeep Tanisha from the School of Social and Political Sciences. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 6th of September 2019. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.